This episode of Tend Her Wild is being sponsored by Revival in downtown Iowa City. Revival is a woman-owned apparel and clothing store for women with a curated selection of new and used vintage clothing. A place where a group of badass ladies can help you own your own personal expression no matter the budget. Revival is independently owned and operated by Sheila Davison, who is a fierce advocate for women's health rights. We love you, Sheila. Inspired by the question, we ask each of our guests, we partnered with local jewelry designer Made Community to create a special earring design called the Door Collection. You can find these pieces in store or online at Revival, Iowa City this season. Which door did you go through to become a wild woman? You can wear the earrings that match that. Who were you before you lost your wild self? That's what we're helping you explore on the Tend Her Wild podcast. Through questions and tools around how best to listen to your inner voice, rewild ourselves, and live the most authentic life where we thrive instead of survive. I'm Betsy. And I'm Kate. And we're so glad you've joined us for this episode. Welcome, Tend Her Wild listeners. We are excited today to have a special guest with us, Marlene Mendoza. Marlene is the founder and executive director of Mendoza Consulting and has worked with philanthropy, national nonprofits, state and local government, and the private business sector. Mendoza Consulting provides policy and research analysis, strategic advisement, bilingual market research and business development, translation services, and creative community solutions. Marlene, who's with us today, received her B.A. in International Studies and Global Health at the University of Iowa. During her undergraduate years, she worked as a community health organizer in rural Latino towns across Iowa. After graduating, Mendoza moved to Washington, D.C., where she worked with various national policy organizations, the Center for Law and Social Policy, the Forum for Youth Investment, and the Aspen Institute Forum for Community Solutions. During her time in D.C., Marlene worked on various state and national policy initiatives and national campaign issues related to post-secondary education, workforce development, opportunity youth, and economic development. Most notably, she co-led national youth campaigns and actively seeks to bring adults and young adults to the policy table and decision-making process. Marlene, we are so excited to have you. You currently live here in North uh, Liberty. North Liberty. Um, you're an active member of our local League of United Latin American Citizens, or LULAC. Mm-hmm. And you're a state deputy director of LULAC. Yes, very Iowa. involved with LULAC. Yes. <laughs> you're a self-starter. You're an entrepreneur, which mm-hmm. is how we met. Mm-hmm. Um, you work on various economic development projects here in the community. You're co-founder of the EL5M. Mm-hmm. Um, Emprendimiento Latino. Yes, whose mission is to support Latino entrepreneurs in Eastern Iowa. Um, You're also co-founder of the Diversity Market, which is held every summer for several weekends in a row to highlight um, immigrant and um, entrepreneurs of color that are um, starting businesses. And you have worked to help revitalize the South District through the Self-Sustaining Municipal Independent District, or the SMID in the South District. Mm -hmm. You also love to travel, which I know in talking yes. with you, immerse yourself in other cultures. You've traveled to England, India, Chile, Argentina, Peru, Bolivia, and Mexico. Yes. 
So you are a woman of the world and we are so happy <laughs> yeah, to have so you. So excited to dig into yes. this conversation with you. Yeah. And she brought in one of my favorite books, not knowing that it was my favorite <laughs> book, know. a Carl Jung book, of course. And I was like, oh, I cannot wait to talk to this person if she's reading that book. So yeah. welcome today. Yes, I, I'll take that as a synchronicity. Mm, yeah. Absolutely. You know, he was uh, the, the one who coined that term, yes, synchronicity. I, I yeah. just, that's what I use it, but yeah. Um, no, I'm just very thankful and uh, grateful to be here and for Kate, uh, for seeing something in me, for uh, wanting to bring me here today. And um, yeah, I'm just very grateful that uh, I've met the people that I've met, especially when I decided to come back to mm-hmm. Iowa City. That was a really hard decision for me to make. And I'm, I can say today that I know for a fact that I made the right decision. Mm-hmm. That's good to have that yeah. feeling. And we can talk about yeah. that in our journey. That's beautiful. Yeah. Well, tell us, tell our listeners, uh, give us a little window into your first 10 years. We always like to start with our guests kind of about how you grew up and where and yeah. important things that happen that really shape us in that first 10 years that kind of guide us throughout life or set our course. So yeah, would you share that? Oh yeah. And, uh, when when you when you first mentioned Kate the idea of looking back into your first 10 years as formative years of your life uh in the beginning I was like well I don't know that I actually have gone through much of life uh I'm 28 years old I'll be turning 29 here on January 15th and when I decided to look back and really think about what I experienced Uh, In my younger formative years, I realized that there was a lot of things that I have suppressed Mm. uh, in the past. I I was doing the work of healing uh, that younger version of myself. But yeah, I I, it was amazing how easy it was to fool myself to tell tell myself that, oh, it wasn't that bad or maybe you don't remember it that way. Uh, but those are all tools for uh, really protecting myself. It's def- sure. it's a defense mechanism. So if I can go back to my first 10 years of life, I, I was born and raised in Chicago. I'm not from Iowa. Um, my parents are both immigrants. They're from Mexico. I was raised, um, you know, by immigrant parents. I am the third child. So I'm a middle child, um, one of six. Um, and I would say, I think one big highlight of my first 10 years of life would be that I, I was never stable, uh, physically. Mm-hmm. So then that's, has a lot to say about how I felt in, in, in my future and looking back. But I, I, when I mean that is I was constantly moving, I was never able to make friends, uh, long-term friends, even now, especially here in Iowa, you meet people who are like, Oh, I met this person when I was in my town mm-hmm. and we went to school and then we got married and we've been together and now we've been together for more than 50 years. Or you have beautiful friendship stories of like, I've known that these people, I've grown up with them and um, you are friends with them all into your you know older age. And I, I do envy that because I'm like, I wonder what that could be like to have mm-hmm. someone so close to you that accepts you and watches you grow in all your ways and forms. And I can't say that I have any uh, close people that have watched me do that, with the exception, I would say very few people. But, you know, if I could put a number to it, I think I moved between 12 to 15 times before the age of 18. Wow. All within the Chicago land area? In the same geographical uh, like space, yeah. Okay. I would say 
we stayed in the West Side. So I was born and raised in Belmont Cragen. Anyone from Chicago might know this, but I was uh, this neighborhood, predominantly Latino, really majority Mexican American, mm-hmm. uh, very low income. And that was my world. I grew up yeah. there. We constantly moved in that area, but we always stayed there. And um, I just remember a lot of happy moments with my siblings. There's six of us. And although we grew up the way we did, there was, uh, you know, I know what it's like to go to sleep and, and not want to ask for food because you don't want to upset your mother mm. or, uh, you know, and, you know, if you're six, seven years old and you're conscious of thoughts like, oh, how is my mom going to pay the rent? Yeah, you uh, could feel how, are we go- how are we going to get to school on time every day? How do I convince my 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 friends in second and third grade that I'm not dirty? It's just that we cannot have time to go and to the laundromat as often, right? Yeah. The fact that I'm even thinking through these thoughts and at preparing myself age, at yeah. such a young age and preparing myself to automatically respond and say, no, I can't do this or I can't do that to avoid my mother's reaction or stress. Mm. I think when I was looking back, that was one huge like red flag to me that I was like, I was so hyper vigilant sure. of other people's emotions, the environment, the situation, uh, how people are reacting to the point that I would change myself in certain ways to make sure that they were okay. Sure. And in return, what I did was I just suppressed that and I made sure to be the good child. I'm going to be the kid that's not going to give my mom any problem because I understand what she's going through and what we're going through. And I would never really open up to my mom about anything really. Mm. Um, you had to be the strong one. Too. I, yeah. I, you would say, yeah. And I never opened up to her about certain things. I just knew I have to be a good student and it was easy because I loved school um, and I just have to behave. Yeah. And if you ever feel like doing something bad, I would always tell myself, like, it's not worth it. It's not worth to try to Risk. mess around or be a kid. Yeah. Because I knew that my mom was my mom was already stressed. So I understood the stress that my mom had and I took that on. Um, and I, you know, I by the time I was seven years old, I um, it was a big moment of my life uh, because at seven my father had left. My mother was a single mother with six kids. Wow. Didn't speak English. Uh, didn't know how to get a job. And she had six kids to feed. Wow. And at that same year, around the same year when my father left, I also lost my childhood innocence. Mm. You know, you know, I'm not going to go into detail about that, but like I, I, I was no, I lost that as a child. Um, you know, you, you go through some yep. form of trauma. And uh, I was aware of that. Yeah. And I, I remember, remember myself telling myself like, Oh, we're we're gonna make sure that we don't remember this. I do I do remember myself uh, telling myself that. So the first seven years of my life, yeah. And then this happened, um, and I would say that I definitely took all the trauma and I suppressed it, like I said. And just such a common thing. It's yeah. such a common thing. It's and the way we it's the way we survive. Like yeah. your seven year old brain can't process all of that, so you just Probably. push it down as a way to get through it. It's it's what all of our brains and nervous systems do. Yeah. And um, I never even opened up to my own siblings e- either. I, I went through, I went, although I was surrounded by people most of my, yeah. my childhood. Did you share with anyone? I, I don't think I shared with people up until I couldn't keep it anymore. Yeah. I think. So I think you held that for a while. I held that for time. a while. I held that for a while. And um, I also remember that um, I never saw my mom in her feminine. Oh, I never did. She Tell us about that, because yeah. that's something we talk about so much in this podcast is 
this need to have this balanced masculine and feminine, you said you never saw your mom in mm-hmm. her feminine because she was, I'm sure, yeah. raising kids and having yeah. to work and, and be both. She couldn't father, show. Yes. Yeah. She definitely compensated for my father's absence. Yeah. At the time, I wouldn't have understood that. To me, it was like a big shift where I saw my mom at a moment at her most vulnerable. And I, and I will say that I did see her one time as a child that I remember when she was feminine. But it was in a way where she wasn't doing it for herself. She mm-hmm. was doing it for someone else. At, around the time uh, my, my parents separated, they never got married. They, they separated. And I remember she lost a lot of weight. She mm-hmm. went from maybe you could say like a size 14 to a size 4. So she lost weight dramatically. Part of that was depression, anxiety. You know, she, you know, was not in a good place. And she started buying makeup. I remember she went to go get her hair done. I remember I used to go with her to the gym sometimes. And back then she used to have those like big platform tennis shoes. (laughs) She would walk on the treadmill and do cardio. And uh, back then uh, they had like like this little room for kids to play while their parents are working out. And I remember that. And I remember that was the first time I had seen her do something out of her, out of her, you know, lane. Like, like, oh, this is very random. This is very. And I still wasn't understanding why she was doing it. But I remember clearly because I would get upset because it would take her forever to put on her makeup. And I was trying to go to school. (laughs) And I was like, Mom, I'm trying to get breakfast, make it for breakfast. And you're taking too long. Like she I remember she would put on a lot of of makeup. And so that was in her feminine. But I was so turned off by it. I didn't know. I didn't have the language. I didn't understand why. But it bothered me so much. Yeah. I remember that. It would bother me. It would make me angry. Yeah. Because I knew that she was in a low place. And I also felt, looking back, that she was doing it for someone else. It wasn't for her. And she was also very desperate. It's so interesting that at such a young age, you could feel the truth behind it. Like, that this wasn't a genuine self-care. I want to better myself, honor myself, take care of myself. Like, you could feel... She was doing it almost out of desperation to, you know, be attractive to someone else. And I just, I think that's, there's so much truth in children feeling those things. Yeah. Um, And clearly you were a sensitive child (laughs) that was feeling your whole environment um, all the time, like that hypervigilant in a way. And the reason why it was such a stark uh, difference was because up until the point where my mom started having children and she had kids I mean, we were practically all Irish twins. They were back to back to back. We were all, we're all very close in age. And when she started first having kids, you look back and you look at the pictures. And I also remember she never took care of herself. Mm. She, uh, but I think this is another cultural context. I think it was more of like, she was like, now that I'm a mother, uh, everything for my kids. And yeah. my mom has never changed. She's still that way. And so she might not look her best. She might look like she's really tired, sleep deprived. She's, you know, God knows everything she had to do. And I, you know, to this day, I don't know how she did it. And I ask her all the time, like, how did you do that? Like, how did you get us out of the situation? And she never, you know, this is what she is. She's a very religious woman. She, so she always says it was God. Mm. And in, in a way, she's not wrong. Mm. You know, in a way, she's not wrong. But she never gives herself credit. that credit. Mm. And it still bothers me that she never does. <laughs> but I understand this is who she is and this is how she sees it. But um, she never took care of herself. She always looked, you know, very frumpy. She just mm-hmm. did. And, uh, you know, she ate for everybody. And, uh, you know, she would. I mean, what I mean by that is like she would feed us first. But then, you know, her kids don't eat everything. And then she would feel like she would have <laughs> yeah. to eat everything else. Finish the plate. Yeah. Finish yeah. the plate. Yeah. Never, she was never wasteful, but always resourceful. And um, so I had that image of that as mom. 
this is a person that comes picks me up from kindergarten first grade and then you see that to then like complete instant night over day where she's taking a long time to get ready and Mm. and you know and I knew I was like what's going on like you never you never used to do that and and it turned me off and um that was short-lived because then I I think we realized oh this this person's not coming back like you're on your own now yeah and um after that, she completely operated in her masculine. And what I'm now, I understand the language to put it that way. But at the time when I was younger, I used to always think like, why is my mom so hard? Like she's a general. She was a general, like mm. between school, church and the home. She never let me out ever. Like I was just those were my three places. I never hanged out with friends. I never did anything. Also, we were constantly moving. So that kind of made it easy easy for me to not yeah. really complain about oh I have friends to hang out with um she never ever was verbal uh during this time with her words she mm. never told us that she loved us but she made sure to show it to us in her acts of service yeah she was working practically all day and there's six of us and I'm the third so the, the, the naturally the siblings are divided three older three younger and the three oldest were like second parents to sure, the three youngest sure. ones yeah. so when my mom got up to work and you know was working she told us i need your help i need you to help me i need you to help me and make sure that you hear i left stuff feed them Mm. go to school you know pick up your younger siblings go back home uh i left something here here's here's and you were one of the and i was one of those three yeah or sometimes she would say here's some food if she could have time to make food if not she would say uh, you know, we were cooking at such a young early yeah. age, me and my other you sister. Were adults, very We were adults, very young. So that's another, young. there's so many signs of that childhood was gone yeah. at a very, very early age. Yeah. And I just felt happy to help my mom and be like, if we can help her out a little bit, I feel like I can be a good daughter. Yeah. And we would, you know, cook sometimes and she would, you know, we, we would, we, things that are easy, you know, not, not as hard, but still like you're turning on a gas stove when you're yeah. like eight, nine years old. And we would feed my younger siblings I would make sure that we would all make sure that they got their homework done. And then around until they're in bed, then I would start doing my homework. So mm. I always served myself last. So you were parenting. I was yeah. parenting. I was, I was parenting. Yeah. And I never felt resentment towards my mom because of what we went through. I understand that this is what had to be done for us to survive. Yeah. So in between all of that and at school, I was a completely different person. I was... You know, like I love school so much. Mm. I love the, the 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 idea of of knowing that there's so much out there and you can learn everything. And the best thing that you can do is try to understand what else is out there and understand that there's a lot of other people who've had it worse <laughs> and uh, mm. make friends and, and just it was really a distraction yeah. and it was a good distraction because I enjoy challenging myself. I think what I was seeking was something to just completely get rid of what I was experiencing at home and the reality of my situation. So I focused so much in school. Uh, I liked working hard. Uh, You know, I liked learning, Um, but I also loved daydreaming. Mm, And whenever I, I, that's such a feminine Mm -hmm. consciousness, sort of this idea to dream and and use your imagination about like, Oh God, like anything. Like I remember any time I had a moment to myself, which was very rare because I'm in a full house. You're in a two bedroom apartment with seven people. Right. So I remember I would always try to um, stay up at night and everyone's sleeping. And just at night, I would just look up at my ceiling and I would just come up with scenarios creative just i just in this this version of me you know living in the 1800s 
you know, like, you know, it's just anything like just scenarios like that. I would just put myself in different scenarios, like literally removing myself from where I was at now. Different and lives. Imagining different yeah. lives, imagining, uh, you know, and, and really visualizing it, not just thoughts. Like I would really That's just powerful. put myself in visions and it came so natural to me. Sometimes I would get stuck in daydreaming and I would make this look where like, like I would be like you were talking, right? And I'm day, I just catch myself daydreaming. Sometimes it got so strong that I, then there were moments in school and it, with my mom where I couldn't control them and I would just be zoned out and my mom would be like, what are you always thinking about? Like, oh. what is what is going up in there? And I would never tell her. But so, like, we would be talking right now. And then I'll just start looking at that beautiful winter cactus that you have. And then I'll just, like that, I'll just kind of disappear. I just disappear. Mm. And I just go into my own thoughts. And you can ask any of my siblings, and they still make fun of me f- uh, for that. And it's never gone away. I've still had that. I've still kept that. Do you that. use it? I'm curious as an adult, because I, I totally believe in the power of imagination. I do think it's feminine consciousness. It's mm-hmm. it's very feminine, but it's such a powerful way to actually create your life. Yes. So I'm curious as an adult, do you consciously use it? I mean, you've clearly done so much already. I, when you said you were 28, I was like, whoa, look at all she's already done and she's 28. Do you, do you know if you're using the power of this imagination that clearly came out of trauma and, you know, survival and all of this as a kid, do you, do you use it now as an adult to continue to kind of manifest or create yeah. the life you want? Um, I, I, I would say in the last two years, I've come to realize that this whole time I was doing it uh, unconsciously. Mm. I didn't, I was not aware of what I, I was actually just doing very naturally. So it must, it says a lot that whatever I, whatever my, my, my life, what I went through was so strong that it auto corrected itself really hard the other way around to try to balance myself out. And by doing that, I started doing things just so naturally. I'll give you an example. I remember when I was very young, I would um, have this like really strong, like we would be here and then I would have this moment of clarity where I would look around the room and I would literally ask my siblings and my mom and I would say, like this is like around 10 or 11, I would say, mom, I am Marlene, but in this body and of all the people, you are you in your body. And you're my mother. And I came out of you. And I would tell her, like, wow, like, I can't believe that this is my life. Like, I'm real. And you're here. And, like, what is this? Like, this is, like, like, wow. and I would touch things. You're about 10 when you And I was, like, yeah. 10 or 11. And I would tell that to my mom. And it would scare her. Because my mom, you know, she's more on the religious side of things. So, to her, she's, like, my daughter's losing her mind <laughs> you know we're very You're tuning into the my, my, sort of my, the yeah. more eternal con- you know yeah connection of your souls probably and the interesting thing is that i had these thoughts and every once in a while i would just blurt them out when i would have those moments of clarity or i would wake up from a dream and i remember when i would wake up from the dream i used to tell my mom all the time I'm convinced that my actual life is what I see in my dream. Like this is what if this is the dream? Mm-hmm. And so when you tell your parents that, <laughs> they literally are concerned for your health and safety. So my mom would take me to the doctor and just be like, "Doctor, it's just I feel like she's just too much in her head. Mm. Like is that normal?" And the doctors would always tell my mom like, "Oh no, like that's fine. Like there's nothing to worry about." Mm-hmm. And then I realized, you know, I realized that this is causing my mom more anxiety than it is me. So just then you started open. to so not I tell her. So yeah. I stopped talking yeah. about it. Yeah. And 
if I did bring it back up, I knew to bring it in the context of her religion mm. because she would understand that. Mm. So if I told her that I was praying and I had this feeling of like, I just know that this is going to happen, she would be open to it. Yeah. But if I would just tell her and say, no, mom, I just know she would just be she wouldn't pay attention to me. And so I remember when I was um, in between one of these uh, moving, constant moving. We, were, we would be at a place max, maybe two or three years, and then we would move. I remember one time when we were moving, I had this feeling uh, of just knowing that this is not my life. This is temporary. Mm. I will not live and stay in poverty. How would I know that as a kid? My yeah. mom wasn't reassuring that to me. No one else was reassuring that to me. There were no signs at there that point. There was no point. signs. On the contrary, we had so many people, good Samaritans, that came into our lives that did not have to for a long time. To come and check and say, what do you need? Do you need mm. food? Do you need winter jackets for the kids? Do you need rides to go to school? Uh, here's financial assistance. These people did not have to do this, but they did. They, they just did. And when I was younger, I could not understand why. Like, you don't have to do this. There's so many people that are going through what I experienced with my siblings and my mom. Why right. us? Mm. The why was always there. I could never understand the why. Mm. And you asked about, did I know that I was constantly doing or manifesting it? Kids learn from their parents' behavior. And I remember that when I was younger, um, as soon as my dad left, my mom went immediately back to the church. When we were still with my father, the first seven years of my life, um, my dad was not a religious man. Like he just, did, we was just, my mom didn't drive. He had the car. He said that he does not go to church. We, we did not go to church. Yeah. As soon as he left, the first thing my mom did was, we're going to church. Mm. Obviously, you're in that type of position. My mom's very stressed. She's very sad. She's going to want to seek any kind of help that she needs. And she needs the community. So around third grade, I go from not even understanding what the Bible is or anything religious to I was going to church five days out of the week. Wow. And I'm not exaggerating. Like literally, I would go to church five days a week because when I was around third grade, I moved from schools too. So I moved from the school that was literally right in front of my house to a school that was uh, about two miles uh, or so walking, um, maybe two or three miles walking. And we and would, walk, would there, have to walk and we would walk there every day um, if we didn't have a ride. In all of that, um, I remember that my mom would always tell us like, oh, uh, now that I'm back in church, I want to get involved and I want to build a community here. Because when she grew up in Mexico, she grew up in a Salesian community. Well, so Salesian is just another order for Christians, mm-hmm. like Franciscans and things like that, Jesuits. So in the in Catholicism, there's uh, Salesians. So my mom grew up with the Salesians in, in Mexico. And um, she found Salesians in Chicago. The, the only other church was St. John Bosco. The same St. John Bosco that she had when she was growing up. So I think she saw that as a sign of like, I need to go back mm, to this church. So yeah. she, we came back to that church. My mom got active immediately. Uh, people in the church community realized our situation. And my mom started cleaning um, rooms and directory of the rooms of the, mm. the priest. And so she started as cleaning. She just needed any type of job. And they were like, okay, well, we can give you this. So if you look at a, at a like a, a regular intersection in a small neighborhood, you have in this corner, you have the rectory where my mom worked. And, and that was a huge uplift in my childhood because we had money now. She like, had a job, know, she had a, a regular job. job. She had a regular yeah. job. So, so she lived in, uh, so she was working at this rectory. Right in front of, of that rectory was a school, used to be Catholic, became a charter school. My mom decided to move us all there to align with our schedules and her mm-hmm. work schedule. So we would go to school right in front of her. 
at the other corner was the church. At the other corner was a youth um, oratory, like a like a, a youth space, youth class, community, sir. like yeah. a youth center. Yes, a youth center. So my whole life, when I say I don't know an experience outside of school, church, and home, that's why yeah. my environment world. became yeah. that church community from around the age of nine up until eighteen when I left to come here for school for okay. college, and so that was my world. And I remember my mom uh, when we got involved and she was working, she was asking. And I remember because I would hear her pray at night and she would ask and like, I need help. I need to figure out a way that I can have steady income. When she got that job, I think to her, she took it as there's God heard my prayers. There's no way that I can repay this. So her way of paying back all the assistance we got from the community and the fact that she worked at the church and the church saved us. Literally, it literally yeah. did save us. She wanted to make sure that we were involved. So by that, and remember, she's a general. Yeah. So she would, so she would say, "Oh, my kids, they're going to be the altar servers. They're going to be the, they're going to be the readers. Yeah. Yep. Oh, the cardinals coming, or this big person is coming to visit our church. Oh, my kids are going to be the ones who are going to be hosting, or my kids are going to lead yeah. and become leaders." We, she so put us in a position that. of leadership, yeah. not just one, all six of us. Mm. And at the time I used to hate it because I'm like, okay, now this is my life. And now I'm the weird church girl at school. And now I'm doing all these things that I don't want to do, but I know that I have to do them for my mom. At this point, I'm still operating to please my mother. Sure. Obviously, looking back, thank God, she became, she is the reason I am the leader I am today. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, you are a leader and that I'm sure all came out the of community. Yes. I was going to say the community thread for me. That's like, where it came from. To this, yes, you know how powerful community is. Yes. You saw it being built for you, yeah, around you, you, to support you. Mm-hmm. And now you're doing that for so many others. Yeah, You're creating community to lift others up. So the thread for you and the leadership piece is so... It, yeah, all of a sudden I'm like, wow. Yeah. Okay, can I know. just pause too? Because I love in the beginning, you're like, well, I'm not really sure about my first 10 years. <laughs> and then as you just like, like, shared your story, wow. I'm like, whoa, everything that you went through completely shaped you. And and I want to talk more about what happened when you left home. But clearly um, you went through so many things that have had such a huge impact on who you are as a human and then how you're serving. I mean, clearly you're serving in such a committed way. And I do think that service often comes out of what we've gone through and um, so in some ways what the the gifts of your childhood even though there was a lot of trauma and pain and you know poverty it has so shaped how you are showing up as an adult now and and to wrap up the first 10 years you asked like how, how was I aware that I was doing this and I was leading up and building up to you know as we got involved in the church my mom would sign herself up for certain things and say um, for example, oh, I'm going to be in charge of um, the summer. They call it in Spanish a kermes, but really it's like a market, uh, uh, like a yeah. Yeah. carnival or kermes. Yes. Yeah. To raise money uh, for youth programming at the church. And she would sign herself up like she was in charge of figuring out who was going to do what. And I would get uh, nervous for her. And I would say, Mom, you signed yourself up for this. You have to deliver to where are we going to get the funds? How are we going to get this done? Like, don't you see where we're coming from? And she would always look at me and she would say, don't worry about it. I know. She would just say, I know 
that this will get done. She just knew. She was so confident in it. And sure enough, the day comes, <laughs> I show up and I'm nervous. I'm over here like, oh my God, if this looks bad, I'm just going to hide and run away. Because, you know, when you're involved in the yeah. church community, everybody knows you. Everybody knows what you're wearing and your gossip, you know. And I was I was, I was, was uh, concerned about what people were going to think because I'm like, oh, this is going to look really bad. No, this woman, God knows, like she pulled out <laughs> an altar from something you see in, I don't know, like... Like, I couldn't believe it. And she, everything she did, it was just done so well, so beautifully. And I remember I was just in awe. I'm like, how does she do that? Like, it doesn't matter what it was. It could be a church. It could be, you know, we need X amount of money for X thing. She would find a way. Like, she would, now I know the word is manifested. But my mom understood how to share a vision with a person and have that person naturally come to her and say, hey, I, I have this. Can I help you? Mm. and she did it through prayer so it's the same thing except my mom does it through her form I do it through my form but I really learned it from her so when I saw her naturally operate in that way I didn't know that I was naturally doing it for myself until two years ago when I was doing some of this work um, where I realized oh that is the gift that my mom has and that is what I learned from her and this is why to me I say when people tell me wow that must have been really hard it's something that I've done and I tell them like well not like I don't want to say not really because I also don't want to sound like you know so I, I just I just I just think about it and when I'm honest with myself and my sisters specifically ask me they're like you know I, we forget you have your whole life sometimes we just think that you're just our sister but you have your whole life you know mm. and they ask me like well, how, do you, how do you do some of that stuff and I just tell them like I don't know it's like mom it's just very easy it comes very natural to me mm. um, and that's kind of how I figured out that I kind of mm. had that same gift from her but but yeah those were my first 10 years of life and you're right Kate and, and Betsy it did set me up for or like full circle, like coming back to Iowa City. Yeah, um, but I was not like I was not that way in DC. Yeah. That was another person. Well, we and I want to talk a little bit about that because you left home. Yes, and to, to go, go to college, college. Yes. How she got did into that the happen? University of Iowa. Yeah. So, um, like I said, I loved school. I was involved in academic decathlon, model UN, like sports. I did a lot. Um, so much that by the time I graduated from high school, I remember thinking, whoa, I'm burnt out because then I have to do this in college. (laughs) And then when I graduate from college, I have to do this for my job. And that's how much I was. I was so like, I was so like on so much on mm-hmm. and that very masculine energy and very masculine exactly it was very that's masculine what she saw in her mom yep. how yes. would you know how to integrate the rest in the feminine there was no rest and, yeah. like rest was when you went to bed and even then like another conversation for another time it's like dreams but and you'd wake up and you're like what is going on but anyways um yeah i so you're yes. burned out. I was burned out. But she you came to college. You come but to I, came college. To, I came to college because were you the, the first universe, one of yeah, your kids that went to college? Another thing my mom manifested, she would tell people like, "Oh no, my kids are going to go to school." Like, and one thing that she did when when we were young is that she would never let us do anything. Like no chores. We had no chores. Mm. She would say, "School. Your only job is to excel in school. Anything you need for school, you let me know. I will bring it to you. You have no excuse to say why you cannot excel in school." That is what is going to get us out of the situation. That was wow. Your job. That was that my job. So powerful. So no chores, nothing. So the house also, <laughs> at times, wasn't like uh, the best. But we focused on our school. And my oldest brother was the first one, full ride, University of Wisconsin Madison. Mm. The second one was also, uh, you know, uh, paid for, and she went to uh, a private, and then she transferred to uh, Western Illinois University. Mm. I had the full ride at the University of Iowa. Um, after me, I had, um, my other sisters at Northern, uh, she's almost done Illinois university NIU. 
Then my brother got a full ride to Urbana-Champaign. Mm. And then my youngest sister also all paid for at the University of Illinois in Chicago. Wow. All six. Wow. I have chills actually I do right too. Now. Yes. Wow. And just the, the power of education, which I like, that's a passion point for me, how public education and being able to allow students to be uh, lifted up and, and have the opportunity you had, because had yeah. you not had a full ride, it may not have been possible. No. And so there's no way there was no yeah, way you could have that is that. That's how you change generational poverty. Yeah. Yes. And your mom knew that. That's she what I did. The testament she to did. your mom that she saw the path that this is the yeah. way out of this poverty yeah. um, sort of cycle we're in. Yeah. And, and even though she was working a lot, she would do what she had to do if one of us was acting up and she had to go to the school. Um, and she made her point very clear. And, you know, this is why when I see my mother now in her more in her more feminine form, like I get so emotional. But um, yeah, so I was burnt out. I came here to school and I remember when I got dropped off here, um, I couldn't believe it. I was mm. I couldn't believe it. I was just like, oh, my God, I'm here. Um, and it was a little bit of a shock. But then at the same time, I was like, wait, I'm alone. Mm. I have time to be alone. I'm not surrounded by siblings. I'm not in a two-bedroom apartment apartment. seven people. I'm not stuck with the same people all the time. And that that used to always frustrate me because I I remember thinking in high school too, like, oh, these people think I'm this person. But in reality, they don't know that I actually have a bite. And I didn't want to show that because then I didn't want it to think like, oh, now you're trying to be this other person. Um, So I was always aware of that, like that I had this... Well, now I know that the word is a shadow, but back then I didn't. So I was always like the very proper girl mm-hmm. at school and whatever. And I used to always feel like, oh, I just, I remember telling uh, um, my mom and other people, like, I'm going to be like my brother. He got it right. Uh, and him too. He's like, I want to go away from here. I want to experience something else. So he went to Wisconsin. And we all kind of are like in the, run the Big Ten. But it wasn't the first time I left my neighborhood. When I was a sophomore in high school, I applied and I got into a program where they picked top kids in um, your high school. And then you would go to someone else's high school at another Mm -hmm. country and you would experience that. And that was the first time I left your neighborhood, my neighborhood. Because remember, I was in those three little. I went to Birmingham, England. Wow. Yes. For how long? It was for two weeks. And I remember that. That had to be a mind blowing experience. Oh, yes. Yeah. Actually, I was going to say I was prepared for Iowa because I had gone through yeah. that yeah. in yeah. high school. And when they told us that the trip was, they called it the Birmingham trip. I'm over here thinking, oh, I've always wanted to go to the South. I Alabama. thought it was Alabama. Yeah. So when I got in and they told us like, oh, you need to get a passport. And I was like, why? Go to Alabama? To go to Alabama? <laughs> and they're like. Honey, you're going to Birmingham, England. England. I was like, I ran home that day and I was so excited. And I told my mom, mm. she started crying. And I was just like, oh man, I'm not going. She's not going to, I I don't know why. I, she started crying and I start, I immediately thought, she's not going to let me go. She's not going to let me go. But no, she started crying. Oh my God, all these memories are coming back. She started crying <laughs> because when I was uh, younger, uh, she, we would drop off my siblings to school and I was still not in grade school yet. And I would tell my mom that uh, I would point to planes and I tell my mom like, Oh mom, when I get older, I'm going to be in a plane a lot. I'm going to travel a lot. I used to tell her that. And um, she saved this picture where I drew a plane and then I wrote like uh, three uh, uh, countries that I wanted to visit. And when we were, um, you know, this is going back to the power of education, even though we were poor, my mom would find uh, old, uh, 
not encyclopedias. Uh, yeah, it's Encyclopedia Britannica, yeah. Yeah. Almanacs, mm-hmm. all these kind of things that she could find that were used. Maybe at thr- I don't know where she, this woman got them. Maybe thrift stores. <laughs> she would find these things. She would just come home with these old boxes and, you know, to entertain ourselves, you know, when I would get bored of fighting with my siblings, I would just look through them. And it was just like encyclopedia. So you would look at animals, things that you would never see mm-hmm. or that we would cover in school. So I would like another thing to daydream. I would look through those and right. just distract myself. I also really loved reading. Like I taught myself how to read when I was like in first wow. grade because I remember feeling like, what is that? I want to be able to. Yeah. It, it was just a way for me to distract myself. So um, the three countries, where did you the say three you countries were going? I'm curious. England. England, of course. The second one was India. And I did go to India. Wow. Wow. And then the third one was Egypt, and I have yet to go to Egypt. But I wrote this down. My mom remembered it. And so when I came home, I didn't remember. You know, parents say yeah, these things. Didn't remember she these said, things. I have this picture. She showed it to me. Oh, my God. And one of the clean, when she was cleaning out, because remember, we were always moving. So in one of those processes, she found it. She showed it to me. And I was like, whoa. You and manifested I, that. And at that time, it creeped me out, but I didn't. I was like, coincidence. I didn't I didn't realize that that was the touch meaning to it. I just like, oh, it's just a coincidence. Um, but yeah, those were the three countries I had written. So when I told her, I was like, hey, I'm going to England. She started crying and she was just like, you know, when you were little, you used to always tell me you were going to travel wow. and you were right. You, you were going to go to England. Oh, my God. I yeah. love that story. story. And, and so that prepared me for Iowa. So because when I went to England, you have English kids telling me, you're not Mexican, honey. You are American. And I used to be like, no, I'm Mexican. And they're like, where were you born? I'm like, Chicago. Then you're American. So I had, to, I had mm. kids. Identity. identity. I had a huge yeah. identity crisis this whole time. And I didn't understand it until looking back. But they, these kids in another country told me, like, no, why don't you understand American. you are American? What and was that like? Was that, did it feel good? Did you resist it? With I resisted some, it. You resisted yeah, it because your identity was, your no, I'm Mexican. Was yes, Mexican. because I was raised in a Mexican-American community. Yeah. The church was predominantly Latino. All My first language was Spanish. Mm. All my parents ever gave me was Mexican American sure. Mexican culture, not even American. I didn't get Americanized until another. Uh, I call him an angel because he really was. This other person um, came into our lives and really took on the role of being a father figure. Mm. And he was not Latino. He was a white man, and he had his whole family, his whole family, and himself. Literally came in, and that's another story for another time. But he came in at the right time around when I was nine, when I needed that the most Mm. uh, for my educational development, for a lot of things. This person took me to history fairs, science fairs, all the recognitions that I would get. My mom couldn't take me because she was working. But this other individual was in the after hours taking me to games, taking me to me and my siblings. Kind of teaching you the American culture. Yes. I had my first Thanksgiving with him. Mm. I had my first uh, real, uh, you know, this is what, uh, what's that? We're just coming out of the holidays. uh, A Christmas story. With uh-huh. the BB gun? Yeah. That movie? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He showed us that and he showed yeah. us this is this is the certain pies. You have to try Rupert Flow. Here's sledding. Things that if he would have not given them to me, I feel like I would have had a bigger identity crisis in college because yeah. you go from that to this and it's so different. Like, how do you yeah. So how did that? you adjust? So it sounds yeah, like you acclimate. got to Iowa and you felt a sense of like almost freedom. Yes. Like I'm on my own. I get yes. to create my own life. I and went my crazy. Own schedule. You went crazy. <laughs> went crazy. So <laughs> give us a snapshot of those four years and yeah. how your identity evolved during yeah. that time. Um, I realized that I was on my own time. And because I was on my own time, I decided that, I just will do whatever I feel like it. Like I had no actual schedule. Like I remember, and this is like every college student, like, but I remember like, oh, I can just hang out with friends whenever I want. 
I can just go out whenever I want. I can dress how I want. So I went on that like full speed ahead mm. and the hard studious student that I had with the, all the great grades and the reason I gave me a scholarship was not <laughs> present that first semester mm. and uh, I had a lot of fun but then I had the wake-up call at the end of my freshman year because I was like they told me they're like hey you keep this up you lose you're your going scholarship. to go back to Chicago <laughs> right. and you're going to lose your scholarship mm. and that uh scared me because I it wasn't, listen, it wasn't even the fact that I would lose a scholarship because I even consider like, well, if I lose a scholarship, maybe I can get a loan. But then I was like, no, you can't. Um, I mean, you could, but I didn't want to get in debt. But I, the fear was going back to Chicago. To your mom or going back to Chicago? Just going back. Going back to my mom for this disappointment for my mother first. Two, I didn't want to live under that type of restraint. Mm. I, I, was, I was you too found old. freedom. I was yeah. too old. I could not do that. I could not have her control me that way. I just could not. And I resented that. And I, and I re- remember thinking like, there's no way in hell I'm going to go back to Chicago and be the disappointment after seeing two examples ahead of me. There's no way that I'm going to go back and, and do what? Go back and living under her roof. That's not a college experience. Mm. I need to find my own time. So, so you buckle down. That fear yeah. is actually what led Drove me to you. every day after my classes. I went straight to Hardin Library because there's mm. no signal there. No one can find you. I would go to Hardin Library. I studied I in Hardin Library yeah. a lot. I, I love that I place. Yeah, I even got a job there because I was like, I'll be making money. And then I'm literally printing out my homework and doing my homework. I'm at the library. And then if I'm not working, I'll stay there. And I'm not leaving until I get everything done. And that's what I did. And up until, uh, up until all my college, I, I, that I, I did well. I just picked it up from my freshman year. And I, I was trying to learn how to like balance. And yeah. I realized I was never on a schedule. I found out my sophomore year why I was always so chronically late. It's not a fault of my mother. It's, a, it's just an... It's circumstance of the environment because my mother was always working. There's no parent in the house to tell the child, now you do this, now you do that. Like there was no, there was no order. Mm, So not only was I living in a high masculine environment, there was also chaos, but in the way that there was no structure. Mm. So I realized I have no structure. I don't know how to study. I don't know how to actually get up on time. I don't know how to, I didn't know how to account for time. Like I used to think, oh, I can get all this done in an hour. No way. Like I had Mm. the perception was completely off and that really got in the way of, you know, you have an internship, you have a job, you certain things like you have to be accountable. You have to be amazing that you figured that out and taught yourself that. And I I had to because I was like, I I need to figure it out. And and I'm like, you know, a sophomore in college and I realized, oh, this is a reason because you can't study the way you do in high school for college. You will fail. You have to dedicate time. And I didn't know that structure. So I realized, okay, I need to create some form of structure here. So then I did create my own schedules. Um, I worked so much, uh, practically full time when I was an undergrad, that I didn't really, after my first little stints in my first year, I didn't go out anymore. Also, I'm not really a going out person because I really, I'm too, I'm too hyper aware, man. Like I, I'm at the bar. She's too conscious. And I'm just, and I'm just too looking, conscious. I'm just She's an old around. soul. Like yeah. going to the bar. Who goes to the bar I, when you're I'm an old soul? And I was always the one taking care of everyone too. No, so, and, and, and I, and I don't, mother. it's literally, it stayed there too. And I can't drink alcohol well. Like I'll drink one drink and I'm starting getting red and I get sleepy and I, and I want to fall asleep. Like it doesn't even lift me up. It puts me to sleep. So I realized, whoa, drinking is totally not for me. And every time I go out, I'm taking care of someone. Yeah, this sucks. And then I'm getting ready <laughs> and I'm walking around in the cold in heels. Nope. So then so I, so I decided not to do it. Like it just wasn't for me, you know? So you worked and you studied. I worked and I studied. But then I do remember that I had a friend who was like, well, you don't want to look back in your college years and be like, I didn't have that adventurous moment. And she was right. And I was like, okay. So I was doing uh, global health. 
really I wanted to do public health, but the, the degree wasn't there at the time. So the closest thing was a global health. And I went to my advisor and she was like, hey, for our degree, we encourage folks because it's an international studies degree. You should go, go somewhere. Right, right. And I was like, does my scholarship pay for that? And she was like, yeah, you can use it as if you're just signing up here, but it will transfer over. Wow. And I was like, well, then there's no, well, why not? There's no reason to say no. So I decided that I wanted to go to Chile. Oh, and this is why I traveled in South America, because um, the, the options were uh, either Spain, which I was like, but everybody goes there. I want to go somewhere where like most people are like, what? Like, where'd you go? Yeah. So I was like, no, let me uh, let me go to Chile. So I went down to Chile. Also, Mexico, Chile, we share a lot of things, mm-hmm. but it's Culture. not the same. Yeah. It's like you have big cultural similarities, but even lingo and certain food is different. Their way of life is a little bit more different. And so I wanted to know, like, what is it like to have all these versions of uh, of ethnicity? Right. So I wanted to explore that, too. And I could speak Spanish. So I would feel more safe. And my mother felt more safe because she's like, well, if she needs help, she can communicate. She can speak Mm -hmm. Spanish. So I went down to Chile for uh, six months, uh, had the most amazing time of my life. Mm. I did things that if I were to share them with my kids, they'd be like, mom, you're crazy. Like my future kids. Um, like I hitchhiked with a, a group of two other people all the way to the mountains, to the Andy mountains to celebrate a specific grape that only grows there. Um, and they have a wine festival there. And I stayed up for like two whole days, watched the sunrise, tried new herbal natural remedies. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> and it was awesome. It was, it was, it was just the most amazing mm. time of my life. I was present the whole time. I, was I wasn't present. thinking Aww. of anything else. I yeah, was in the moment beautiful. and I loved it. And that, helped me to be like oh I had a great college experience mm. because I, I decided to study abroad yes. to India and then Chile yes. oh. so your enthusiasm is so um, infectious infectious <laughs> yes it's just like your energy yes. and your zest for life and and you know so I want to know like what do you do now I mean I know that you are helping so many people and these all these life experiences that have brought you to this moment in time yeah you know, what is what is your passion right now in terms of uh, the work you're doing? Honestly, I've I finally have narrowed down. I could be wrong, but at least for this moment, <laughs> I, you're I, allowed I, to be wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at least for this moment, I understand that my role is to come back to community at that level and be the people that helped me when I was in that community mm. that saved me. Mm-hmm. I finally understand that that is what I'm supposed to do. And it comes naturally to me. It is at the time when I'm the happiest. I feel the most when yeah. I do it. It's and a it, good sign. And yeah, yeah. And it reminds me of, I just feel indebted. Like mm. all these people so save me and my family. I can then give it back. And they don't have to know my name. They don't even know who I am. But it's the same kind of Samaritans that would be like, why are these people here? Mm. Why are they dropping off a turkey? You're now the Samaritan. I am now, now returning it. Yes, I have to. That's the least that I can do is just return that. So that is my purpose now. And when I graduated from college, um, you know, I was exploring, you know, finding myself. And the first iteration of who I thought I was when I graduated, I realized like, oh, you know, like I also I was watching too much Sex in the City. I wanted, <laughs> I really was. I was watching yeah. way too much Sex we in the City. We all were. At yeah. some point. <laughs> I just I, rewatched it actually. <laughs> I, I, for a second time. I did. <laughs> and I was like, I want to hold the latte 
and I want to get off my <laughs> and wear the fancy heels and I want to yes. wear my work dresses and I'm going to chime into my office in downtown the city and I'm going to go to the happy hours and I'm going to meet people and rub elbows and network and, and I wanted that life and I wanted to experience that and sure enough I graduated and me and my partner now went to go work in DC and we were in the thick of the swamp. Like we lived in Arlington, but I worked on Ellen, uh, on L street on um, by DuPont circle. So mm. that those, that's all nonprofit areas. All the big organizations are there. I was there at CLASP. And when I got there, interestingly enough, even though I was romanticizing it because of sex in the city, something happened when I was there where, and I told this to Kate, I had this sudden <laughs> like, Oh, Oh, you're in DC. Like, this is like you're with the big dogs. You've now. made it, like, man. Yeah, yeah, you made it. And and I was like 23, 24, and I was like, oh my god. Like, and then I had a panic, a moment of panic, uh, where I was like, are they going to take me seriously? Do I belong? Yeah. Do I belong here? Like, oh my god. Yeah. Like, how do I go from what I went through in that life, and then I, you know, only certain people know about it, and then I had my other version of my life in high and college, and people know about that, and then now I have this life, and I kept compartmentalizing, uh, if I said, if I could say that right, my life, mm. and so to the point when I got to DC, I didn't know who to be. I literally mm. lost my speech. I lost. You couldn't speak. I, couldn't I speak. started. I developed a stutter. Because wow. I was so indecisive and I wasn't sure of who I was. Wow. I cut my hair because I thought, oh, well, I'm in D.C. If people want to take me seriously, uh, you know. And, and masculine. It, it, masculine. So I cut, mm. the, I cut the hair. I started acting more aggressive. I started acting like the general that I had seen in my mother. But in, in my professional space, I neglected my partner a lot. I used to also... Uh, think and operate and be like well in order to get ahead here like it's just the way that it is this is just what you have to do yeah well sometimes you just have to compromise on your values or you know and I would do that and I would be okay with that and I remember that around this time I got really depressed mm. I got really depressed uh so depressed that it was really hard for me to get up every day and go to work crying on the way to work mm. being like I thought this is I, I thought wanted. that this is what I wanted. I yeah. thought that this is what my mother said. Like, you work really hard, you get there, and then you stay there. Like, you had made it with the I big dogs, it. and you were miserable. And I was miserable. And professionally-wise, I was good because I was receiving the validation of, like, oh, you're doing great work, and this is all great. But personally, inside, I was mm -hmm. dying. Yeah. I felt like I couldn't breathe. I felt like I kept having dreams of myself, like, um, like drowning. Mm. I had dreams of, like... I was pulling out things out of my mouth. My teeth were all falling. Like in the dream, like my, all my teeth would just come out and I could not speak in the dream. Shortly after those dreams, I didn't pay attention to them. They started getting worse and worse, very dark. And suddenly I went, I had to give a presentation for a, a funder or something. Like I don't remember what it was. It was an important day. I had to give this presentation for this thing and I couldn't speak. I lost mm. words. I kept going stuttering. I, I did not do well. I killed it. I, I killed it in a bad way. I was just like, <laughs> oh, this is not good. And my boss was like, are you okay? And I, and I had to lie to her. I was like, oh, it's just that I'm not feeling well, whatever. And then it scared me because I was like, I can't even speak. Yeah, I'm not even sure of the words Lost, that I'm saying and who yourself. I am. I'm losing myself. And I remembered back to the experiences that I had when I studied abroad in Chile and, you know, in, in D.C., uh, you know, different rules, different laws and policies. So I realized like, I do not want to go on antidepressants. Uh, another story for another time. I saw someone very close to me, my family, go down that route. And it was really hard to go through that experience. So I said, you know what? Before I go there, let me exhaust all the natural mm. options. 
So I started, um, you know, at the time I started figuring out other natural uh, options and that started to lead me back into like, what am I doing here? Mm. Why am I, you know, why am I in DC? What, what was my ego trying to accomplish with this? What am I actually doing? I think one of the questions that I asked myself that hurt so much that I cried was like, what, what are you, what do you actually do? What is the value Mm. that you are doing in your work? And I could not answer it. Wow. I have a title. I know all these people, you know, they say that they're doing this and that, but at the end of the day, what does that lead to? How do you connect to something? Are you making a difference? The answer was no. Mm. I was playing the political game. I was in the political machine. You come up with talking points. Everybody says the same talking points. You go into a room. No one's really saying what they're saying. People are self-censoring all to win points on your team. Wow. And all that work, gubernatorial transition or the center is no longer in the office back to square one. So I was like, I'm not doing anything. Yeah. And, and I'm thinking right now that D.C. is a place where there is a lot of inauthenticity yes. because you have to be so polarized. You're in one yes. camp or you're in the other camp. And that's not really true that's life. Life, life isn't black and white. No. Life is both and. It's very, you know, murky and complicated. And yet in D.C. it has to be very, it's either this way or that way. Yes. So I'm just thinking about your whole evolution and you're trying to figure out who you are. And like that environment, it's probably impossible to really be authentic it is because you have to like you said have the talking points have the image yes and so yeah and i'm thinking wow so i lived there for a summer i was an intern in dc and it it changed me like it it does not take long for that like to take have its grip on you Mm. and you you are in it's a whole different world and it is the most inauthentic i've ever felt Mm -hmm. you too kate oh that's interesting absolutely i didn't i I got more masculine. I was, yeah. I, you feel the aggression and the pace. Yes. And I remember coming back and being like, how do I slow down again? I don't know how to slow down. Your nervous system was so, was so amped up huh? here. Yes. And oh my God. Yes. The slowing down was a hard thing when I came back, but I, you said something, Betsy, and you're totally right. It is, you are rewarded for being inauthentic. Yeah. It's a, that's the way you survive. you yeah. that that's if you want to go, it, it's the game. That's the game that you have to play. Also, I knew that I wanted to figure out, okay, how is this game being played? Because when I was preparing to go to DC and I was applying for jobs, I did want to learn that. I was like, I want to learn how the sausage is made. Like, what's what's really out there? Um, And I went and I didn't like it. Um, A person that was falling apart professionally, the first year, I kind of did what people kind of told me. And just to give context, I was a research assistant. So, excuse my language, but I'm supposed to do like, you know... No, I'm not going to curse. You, you just do busy. <laughs> you you just curse. Do, you just, <laughs> you're allowed. You know, you're, am I allowed? Like, yeah. You're allowed, yeah. <laughs> uh, I was doing bitch work, mm. you know? Um, well, at least that's what you, I mean, you know what you're signing up to. You're starting at the yeah. bottom yeah. and then you have to serve other or, people and yep. things like that. Earn it. And you got to earn it. Yeah. So the first year, I want to say I, I, I stuck to it. I want to say, but then something happened around the second year. And this is also the power of working with an individual or a boss or a mentor that sees something in you and wants to nurture it. So my former boss, Keisha Bird, I love her. Uh, she's living her life, her best life in Ghana right now. Um, but she recognized that I had a knack for being able to bring people in a room, give them a vision and get them riled up to be like, what do you need from us? And at the time when I was working at the Center for Law and Social Policy, we were doing policy. But we, were, we wouldn't um, 
specifically, I was working on the youth policy team. So anything that came out of our office was regarding how does this policy impact young adults, specifically young people who are not in school, not working, the most vulnerable in our communities. And I remember I told my boss, I was like, hey, um, wouldn't it be great if we had like more opportunities to like get feedback and incorporate the young people in developing the policy that's going to affect them? Right. And at the time I was a young adult, I was 24. So I was like, if you let me create a strategy, I can go to conferences and do these policy one on ones for young people so they can see themselves in their role in policy. That's a way to recruit them. And then when we recruit them, we can actually do hill briefings with them on the hill. We can actually work with them. We can create a coalition of them from all over the U.S. We can invite them to our conferences. We can co-write papers with them. Mm. Because and to me, I was like, we're writing on behalf of them. But how do we even know that this actually applies to them if we're not? Their voices. Yeah, exactly. Intentionally Mm. including them in the process. Now, to me, naturally, that's how I just think and operate. Because, again, going back to what I saw with my mom in the community. What does the community want? It's all tied together. It's all tied together. And so she was like, you know what? I've been looking for a person who would be, she was on the same page. She understood what I was saying. And she was like, I've been looking for a person that could kind of help us start that because they were kind of starting to think of how do we do that? But I came at the right time where I was like, let me do it. I want to do it. And so she, she gave me the freedom to really not do my job. So mm. I literally was, and I would feel bad sometimes because there's other research assistants for each policy team. And I was always traveling. I was always going to conference. I was doing things that... You were on airplanes. Yes, yeah, I was on airplanes. I was traveling at least twice a month, meeting young people all over the, the nation, mm. you know, giving these presentations, bringing them together, saying, hey, we're going to write an, we're gonna write this brief for, for mental health or whatever it was. And it was it was professionally it was great and that was the only sliver that held me on Mm. it was my authentic way of knowing how to build rapport with a person that looks like me and a lot of these young people that we work for in the policy the organization was the 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 mission of the organization i believe was uh, low income uh, policies so policy solutions for low-income families. It might have changed recently, but the idea was this organization is watching out for the little guy. doesn't matter what you look like or who you are. We're going to make sure that certain policies are not detrimental towards you, or we're going to let, let other people know, hey, if you do this, you're going to hurt a lot of these people. So it didn't, doesn't matter what you look like. So I was working in the youth policy team around this context. So when I would be- meet these young people all around the world and I would do focus groups and I would get to know them and we would become friends, not just like, hey, we're just here to do a focus group. I... I was like, that's me. Mm, you yeah, know? you saw yourself. Yeah. In it. And except my outcome was different, but you're still here. And I would feel a type of way. I would get very emotional when I would do these focus groups because you, you just hear what they're going through. And you're like, and I think part of the reason why it was easy for me to do that job is because they realized like, yes, you're from D.C., you're doing this work, but you have experience attached to it's you. The lived experience. Experience. It's the lived experience. And you understand what we're sharing with you. And I took that to heart because I was like, I'm going to do these focus groups and look at the data. I'm going to humanize this data. I'm going to humanize this report. Mm. I'm going to bring these young people to the hill to talk to these members, to do a hill briefing on the hill and have them listen. Mm. This is not just political game i think to me that was the one thing I was like before i leave here i want to show them that listen this is really affecting real people's lives it's not just political yeah. pawns you know yeah. and when i did that work authentically that's what made me stand out in a room of enough i don't want to say they were all inauthentic but the environment yeah that yeah. was inauthentic people and could sense because people could see it and when i and me and my team we operated in that manner. And that's why we got along so well. And I think naturally, because I did that work, that's the only reason that I'm a consultant now. Because mm. when I left CLASP and, and I finished out that work, 
I had other people from other organizations say, pretty much they were like, oh, you're a free agent now. Like, you're not tied to class. Can like, you help me? Can, do you want to yeah. work with us? We want your help to do more youth work, young adult work. And so that's how I worked with the Forum for Youth Investment. Uh, you know, I worked with the Aspen Forum for Community Solutions. A, a lot of it was doing the same thing. Like, can we... Uh, during COVID, I was working with an amazing group of young people who we put together these uh, town halls for young people. Like, mm-hmm. what are they experiencing? Like, people forget. Young people are, are having it they really had the hard. Yeah, the hardest time. Really yeah. hard yeah. right now. Um, and and you attack you yeah. So anyway, so and I enjoyed that work. Um, and when I finished out a lot of that work, I was like, oh wait, people are hiring. I, I couldn't answer why are people hiring me? Like, what is it that I'm giving besides being able to do these deliverables? Like, I was only seeing it as a deliverable. I didn't realize that what people were hiring me for was my creative thoughts, the way I see the world. They're, they want my input as a consultant so that I can let them know, like, well, what if we do it this way? Mm-hmm. And I realized, wait, that's the value I have. So that is the business. And Tom, my partner, God bless his soul, he saw it from the, ooh, miles away. He mm. told me, he's like, oh my God, okay, so now you got to do this. You got to come up with a brand. You gotta, and it would scare me. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 what are you doing? Like, I, I'm just doing this contract. He's like, it's not a contract. This is a <laughs> yeah. business, you know? He is a wonderful human. Yeah. And, mm. and so he helped me find that. And I realized like, okay, so this is what I have. And when I came back, when we both moved back to Iowa City, He's from Iowa and he was trying to, we were trying to figure out what's a place where we can go back that we can slow down, be close mm. to our families and do what we actually want to do. And we both loved Iowa city. You know, we mm. fell in love here. I love this place. And then I met him. Great memories, great people. Only place where I've actually found community, not even in Chicago with mm. the exception of the church community that was kind of forced. I didn't really kind of, find you it on my own it. i didn't yeah, choose this it this is your choice Th- this is my choice i chose mm-hmm. to come back and before i left dc um i had a lot of people some people definitely surprised me who were like what are you doing mm. iowa but what you, you trusted yourself but and, i trusted myself and we are lucky to have you here Thank we you. really are this community is so fortunate to have you um and it's been so much fun listening to like yeah just and I can't wait to see where you go. The stories. Yeah, because this is you. the, you're just on the cusp. Yeah. Maybe as a way to kind of tie this up, what I'm curious to hear from you, Marlon, is what's your, what's your hope for the future for yourself? Like what, it, and I don't mean it like a goal. <laughs> I think goals are, yeah. can be really shallow. I yeah. mean more like what, what's your dream, your vision for how your life continues to unfold going forward and how you continue to take everything that you've been through and use it to Mm -hmm. better the world. Um, I I would say that my dream uh, is, and um, I have this intuitive feeling and I've always trusted it because it's always gotten me out of pickles and it's reassured Mm -hmm. me. Like I've shared with you all of like, it's going to be okay. You're going to get out of this. This is is temporary. This feeling that I have tells me that I have to, it's around communication. I don't know yet what it is. Mm. I know that it's around communication. It could be written form. I don't know the expressive, creative way that it's going to take shape. But I have a feeling that I'm supposed to put something out there. I just mm. don't know yet what it is. And I'm working on myself now to figure out what is it that you have to share. Um, and I just, I don't have an answer to it, but I know that it has to be it has to be like a writing, a writing or something around communication. I know, I know that much um, because that's when I'm the most in my flow. 
Mm. Um, and um, I think that's what I would say. I just don't know what it looks like yet. It's beautiful. You don't have to know. I, and no. I don't have to know. No. Yeah, you're right. I, Life I, I, is going to show you for sure. Yeah. You've got the, the talent and the um, clearly the passion. And I have no doubt that exactly what you're supposed to do is going to show up. And because you're so intuitive and you're tuned in, you're going to know. Well, yeah. and, then, and then I'll know and then I'll be scared again. <laughs> it's okay. It it's okay. Well, we always like to end with um, the quote from Women Who Run With the Wolves. Um, Dr. Picola Estes talks about there are a few precious doors in the world of the wild woman. And you, my friend, are a wild no woman. No kidding. <laughs> wow. um, so if you have a deep scar, that is a door. If you have an old, old story, that is a door. If you love the sky and water so much you can almost not bear it, that is a door. And if you yearn for a deeper life, a full life, a sane life, that is a door. So which door do you think you took into your life as a wild woman? This one is clear, and it was the deeper life. Yeah, you're a seeker. Yeah, I'm to this day, yeah. And it's the idea of knowing that there's something more to this. I just can't put my finger on it yet. Mm. That is what keeps me going every day. So I would say that one. Beautiful. I mean, you came in here with a young book, so clearly <laughs> yes. you're interested in the deeper life. Thank you so much for being oh, with thank us you today. Both. You are really a gem and uh, I see you going places in, and I don't mean that in like the worldly success. I think that will definitely come to you as well, but just um, how you are living life in a really full way. And Such a great example. I'm really inspired by you and all that you've already understood about yourself at the tender age of 28. So I can't wait to talk to you in 20 years and see how you continue to evolve. Maybe we'll get you back before 20 years. (laughs) Thank you both for the time. And that's all I can say. Great. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Do you need some rewilding? All of us actually do. Rewilding is what brings us back to our true essence and our most authentic nature. So you might secretly be on this rewilding path, listening to these podcasts or reading books by other wild women, or you may have been traversing this path for a while. What Kate and I both know so well is that there is something very powerful when we come into community with others who are also doing the work. So for a full week, we would love, Kate and I would love to have you join us in the wilds of Costa Rica. This yoga meditation inner work retreat is not just for women, it's for any human who has desire to clear out the old and tune into your body, heart, and intuition. What you'll get is daily yoga, meditation, healing energy sessions with me, a one-on-one coaching session with Kate during the week, time for walks on the beach, kayaking, lying by the pool, amazing organic food, and walks around this gorgeous property in Nosara, Costa Rica. Are you ready to rewild? Are you ready to join with your instinctive life and your deepest knowing? We'd love to have you join us. You can find out all the information on how to do this in the show notes today. Join us. And now the amazing singer-songwriter, Lissy Morris with Wild West. Thanks for joining us today. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review. Come back and rewild with us again next week.